Matthew chapter 26. And I want to go a little bit different direction. You've already noticed that we've moved communion later in our service today for a reason. And, and it's because of what's going on in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26 is one of the longest chapters in the book of Matthew. It's like 75 verses long. And there's no way that we could cover all of those verses. But as I was looking through the text, I noticed a, a method that John, uh, excuse me, that Matthew used in the writing of this particular section of his gospel that I thought was so fascinating. And so I stepped back and entitled the lesson, A Tale of Two Meals. And you'll see why that's the case here in just a moment. Matthew chapter 26 begins with a plot to kill Jesus. Uh, the, the Sanhedrin's come together, the Jewish council, and they're trying to get rid of him, but they said not during the festival in case it causes the people to riot. And so they end up literally killing him right before Passover begins. You have a meal honoring Jesus that occurs in Bethany. We're going to look at that one in detail here in a moment. Now, one of the things I want to remind you about Matthew is that Matthew doesn't care about chronology, okay? I mean, reading Matthew's gospel, you think, okay, right before Jesus was crucified, they gave him a, a, a dinner over in Bethany. No, that actually happened several days prior. Uh, it's not important to Matthew when it happened. It's important why it happened. And that's why it's found in chapter 26. Judas agrees as a result of that meal to betray Jesus. Then you have Jesus's celebration of the Passover feast with his apostles. That's the second meal we're going to be looking at, followed by his prediction that Peter would deny him. Uh, he had basically said, all are you going to deny me tonight? And, of course, one by one, uh, they're like, no, no, no. And, and, and then he says, one of you is going to betray me. And one by one, you know, is it I? Peter is the one who stands out and says, Lord, never me. We'll, we'll read about that at a later time. Jesus prays in Gethsemane. Jesus is arrested there in Gethsemane. Uh, he's uh, put on trial before the Sanhedrin. And the chapter ends with Peter actually doing the very thing he said he would never do, which is denying Jesus three times. All right. A tale of two dinners. The first one uh, is the meal honoring Jesus in Bethany. The second is this Passover. And the first one begins simply with Matthew 26, verse 6. Again, out of chronological order. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. All right, so here we go. He's in Bethany. That's where he would spend the night every night. And, and he's there in the house of Simon the leper. But if you go to John's gospel, John's gospel, and I've always called John's gospel the Paul Harvey gospel because it tells the rest of the story. Okay, if you ever listened to Paul Harvey, you're, now I know the young people are going, Paul who? Yeah, Paul Harvey uh, used to tell stories beginning with a snippet and then coming and telling the rest of the story. But John tells us that six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Now, to just back up a little bit, he's on his way for Passover to Jerusalem. He goes through Jericho. He heals two blind men, one of which is named Bartimaeus. And then they make the long trek from way down in Jericho all the way up to Jerusalem, okay? Elevation several uh, uh, thousand feet going from below sea level to above sea level. And they arrive six days before Passover. Now, most likely they arrive on a Friday afternoon. 
uh, that at least in my mind is when he and the apostles and a fairly large entourage of other people heading to Jerusalem, they come into Bethany. And it's Friday afternoon. He's going to very likely spend the time, uh, the night with, with uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, his friends who live there in Bethany. And so they arrive. It's Friday afternoon. Friday sunset begins the Sabbath. And so they're not going to do anything for the next day. They're going to eat the Sabbath meal. They're going to rest. They're going to reflect on God. And then on Saturday night, as soon as the sun is set, that for us is still Saturday. For the Jews, that's the first day of the week. Sundown is when the day, the first day begins. And so Saturday night for the Jews was actually Sunday evening. And so they gave a dinner for him there. In other words, he comes into town and they say, we want to give a dinner in honor of Jesus. And you pause and you go, why? And the answer is twofold. The first one is, look who's there. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Lazarus, just a few weeks earlier, had died. He had been buried. And three days later, Jesus shows up and raises Lazarus from the dead. And as far as John's concerned, it's the greatest miracle besides Jesus' own resurrection that he performed. And it made Jerusalem just come alive. Bethany's just over the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. And, and everybody's going out to meet the guy who is dead, who is still alive. Can you imagine that? I mean, all the people wanting to see this guy was dead for three days. Did you see the light at the end of the tunnel? You know, they ask him that. I don't know if they ask him that or not. You know, they're wanting to know, what did you see? What did you experience? What was it like? And so there's a big deal about Lazarus having been raised, and Mary and Martha want to celebrate that. And so they give a dinner in his honor. And then notice, it's at the house of Simon the leper. Why would you think they would call him Simon the leper? Right? You know, that's kind of like somebody calling me less the short guy, okay? wonder why they're calling me short. I don't get that, you know. I mean, my height is built into my name, less, okay? Not hard to figure that one out. But Simon had evidently been a leper that Jesus had healed. And so when Jesus comes back, they're like, we've got to honor this guy. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He cleaned Clear Simon of his leprosy. I mean, Simon is hosting people in his house, folks. Lepers don't do that. But now he's clean, and he can do that. And so there is a party going on. Observation number one, this dinner was a celebration. And then a woman, Matthew says, came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now remember... They didn't sit in chairs when they ate. Uh, last night at our house, we sat in chairs. But, but they reclined. They literally had small tables. They would have been about this high, and they would have pillows all around the table. And so you would recline, usually on your right elbow, with your feet away from the table because feet tended to smell. And, and they would recline all the way around this table, and that's how they would eat. And so... Jesus is at the table, Lazarus is at the table, Simon is at the table, the apostles are at the table, and in walks this woman with this flask 
a very expensive ointment. Again, John tells us who. It's Mary. It's the sister of Martha. It's the sister of Lazarus. It's the one who wants to say, thank you. And she comes in with this pure nard. Nard is a spice from India up in the Himalayas. Uh, it's from a plant that's in the, in the family of the honeysuckle, of all things. And they would take the roots of this plant, and those roots would have this incredible ointment. I mean, this oil in it, very thick, brown, very earthy in smell, but it was used all over the Roman Empire, all the way back, I mean, even into the Old Testament, it was used to make perfume. And Mary comes in with this incredibly expensive perfume, and John says, again, the rest of the story, not only was he anointed on his head, but she also anointed his feet. Don't miss that, okay? And, of course, a lot of people look at that and go, wait a minute, this is a contradiction. No, it's simply the rest of the story. I mean, the parts of the body exposed are the head and the feet. That's the parts of the body that she anointed with this very expensive perfume. And, of course, the fragrance filled the house. And the text says it's worth a year's wages. Why don't y'all think about that for a moment? What has Mary just done? She's emptied her, her savings account. She's emptied her 401k. She's taken everything of value monetarily that she has. Now, I want you to think about a year's wages. Now, I know that's different from all of us in here. Just take yours. I mean, just take yours. Yours may be 50000 It's a pretty nice gift, right? Or it may be like Blake, 250000 Right, Blake? That's an expensive gift to Jesus. I don't care where you are, a year's wages, a year's wages. And, and what we see here is that Mary's expression of love was this act of extravagant sacrifice. I mean, to say thank you to Jesus by taking everything that you had and anointing his body with this life savings that was in the form here of this nard. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum given to the poor. And of course, John says, all right, call his name. Let's just go ahead and say who did it. It was Judas Iscariot. Now, the other apostles may have jumped into the, you know, criticism after Judas did. But Judas is like, why this waste? And John wanted to make sure we understood why he said that. He's the one who was about to betray and he said, this could have been sold for 300 denarii. In a, in a Jewish world, 300 denarii is a year's worth of salary. They always took the Sabbath off. And so you take the 52 Sabbaths out, and you get basically 300 days of work. And Judas says, man, this could have been sold, given to the poor. And John says, no, no, no. He's the one that kept the bag. He was the one who had steal from it. I mean, can you imagine stealing from the bag of Jesus as if Jesus will never know? And, and, John, and, and Judas had been doing that. He didn't care anything about the poor. And, of course, this is observation number three. Satan's always present. Always. Sowing seeds of doubt and effort to undermine our service to God. I hear people all the time say, why in the world are there always hypocrites in the church? People in the church who are always so negative. People who in the church says, no, we could never do that. 
I mean, that would just be too difficult. Why are they there? Why would they not be there? I mean, have you ever thought about this? Where is Satan going to put his best people? I mean, he's not going to put it out there in the world. He already has the world. He's going to put them in the church. And it shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't surprise us. And then the world looks at us and says, look at those hypocrites in the church. Of course they're here. Satan is doing his best to stop us. And boy, he was doing his best to stop Mary in what she was doing. But Jesus responds, why are you troubling her? She's done a beautiful thing. You'll always have the poor. But I want you to notice verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she's done it to me to prepare me for burial. Now, I'm sure when Jesus said that, Mary went, what? No, no, I'm doing it to say thank you. I'm doing it because you raised my brother from the dead. I mean, in the apostles, for, for your burial, what are you talking about? I mean, that's a long way. I, well, the Messiah doesn't even die. And yet Jesus takes Mary's act of thanksgiving and reinterprets it as part of the passion narrative. Now, did you notice that? Jesus takes something that was given for one reason and then reinterprets it for something else. And I want to suggest that he does the same in our lives. That we do something for one reason, and God says, that's good, but I'm going to use it to accomplish something far greater. I've got other plans for that act of kindness that you did. Don't be surprised when God does that. And then Jesus says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done will be told in memory of her. This is what is amazing. Jesus announces that Mary's act of kindness will be a memorial. Matthew says that. Mark says that. Which is interesting because they say nothing about what we're going to look at here in a moment when Jesus institutes a different interpretation to another meal. And yet Mary's going to be remembered throughout all the ages. Why? Because of her act of love. It became an act and part of the passion narrative. Now, fast forward six days, Passover time. Jesus calls his disciples. It's the first day of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread and Passover had kind of be meshed together. They were actually two separate feasts. One is Passover is a one-day feast, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day feast, but they had become kind of just one feast called the Unleavened Bread. And so he sends his disciples into town saying, get the upper room prepared where I can... Uh, Eat, my, eat Passover or keep Passover with my disciples. And so the disciples go and do that. And, and once again, just like in the case in Bethany, six days earlier, this dinner is also a celebration. Passover is the 4th of July for the Israelite people. It's when God finally sets them free. And so here they are coming together to celebrate, and Jesus is so excited about it. He says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, before I suffer. Now, they don't have a clue what he's talking about. But Jesus knows exactly what he's talking about. For I tell you, I'll not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Passover always didn't just point backwards. It pointed to the future, to some other event that would happen that would bring it to fulfillment. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul says Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. When he says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal. Why? Because in, in what was fixing to follow that meal 
was Jesus becoming our Passover lamb, being sacrificed for us. Again, taking this incredible celebration and, and turning it a different direction and fulfilling it in his own life. And Jesus' expression of love was an act of extravagant sacrifice as he was becoming the Lamb of God. Mary comes in, and here's 300 denarii. Here's a year's worth of wages to say thank you. Jesus comes in and says, here's my life. My life, I'm giving that for you. And so two dinners, two extravagant acts. But Jesus, yeah, a little bit more special. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. You remember what happened earlier? And they were very sorrowful, began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? As I was preparing this lesson, I thought, I wonder if Peter asked him that. Maybe John, maybe James, maybe Bartholomew, Philip, Thomas. But I suspect Peter didn't because, no, I'm not going to betray. I'm not going to deny. I'm not going to do anything except follow him to death if I have to. But he finally comes to Judas, and Judas says, Is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus says, You said so. Just like six days earlier, Satan's always present, sowing seeds of doubt in an effort to undermine our service to God in the presence of Jesus himself among the twelve. That's why it shouldn't shock us when we see people who are not what they are supposed to be in our midst, undermining the work of God that we're part of. And now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. What's he doing? Same thing he'd done with Mary. Mary anointed his body as an act of thanksgiving. Jesus says, no, let's reinterpret it. It is an act of of preparing me for burial. Here is the bread, unleavened bread. For the Jews, it meant that they had to leave Egypt so fast, they couldn't wait for the leaven to rise, so they ate unleavened bread. But Jesus comes and says, let's reinterpret that bread. That bread that meant that for past generations, for the future, will mean my body. And not only that, the cup, four cups, each cup representing some aspect of of them leaving Egypt. Now he says, I want you to drink from this cup, for it is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This cup of blessing is going to become a cup of blood that represents what I've sacrificed for you. And so Jesus takes two parts of the Passover meal, reinterprets it once again as part of the passion narrative. And then Paul steps in. Paul's actually the earliest of all the records of the institution of the supper. This is from 1 Corinthians 11, written probably six, seven, eight years before Mark, Matthew, and Luke wrote their Gospels. And he was the first one to tell the story, how that Jesus took the bread. This is my body. But then Matthew adds these words. Excuse me, Paul adds these words. Do this in remembrance of me. Now remember, Matthew says... Remember what Mary did. Mark says, remember what Mary did. But then you get over to Paul, and Paul says, yes, but you also need to remember what Jesus did. Luke's going to repeat the exact same thing Paul says. Remember what Jesus did. 
That's why the tables that used to sit up front says do this in remembrance of me. Same way after supper with the cup. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You preach it by eating and by drinking, you present a message to the world. And you'll do it until Jesus returns. And that's why we do what we do. I mean, we come together in the middle of an assembly like this with singing and prayers and, 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 and lessons and, and giving, all the things that we, we participate in. But right in the middle is the most important of all. Because Jesus announces that his act of kindness will be a memorial to the church and a message to the world throughout the ages to come. John. If you don't have a element of communion, Please raise your hand or make eye contact with somebody who's standing around the room and we'll get those to you. I'm going to attempt to do something I've never done, Leslie. I'm going to try to weave neuroscience, Carrie Underwood, and Jesus into the conversation right now think I can do it. I'm going to give you one final observation that go along with the ones that Leslie's already given us that I want you to hear as a refrain this morning as we encounter communion together, and that is this. Remembering the past helps us imagine our future. Got it? Remembering our past helps us imagine the future. Memory is a really essential and critical thing to our lives, to our brains and our minds, if you think about it that way. And uh, neuroscientists actually will tell us or inform us that memory is continually at work from the moment our central nervous systems start to do what they do. And they don't even really know when that happens, but most of them think that it probably happens before birth. It's pretty phenomenal if you think about it. Um, But memory is powerful. Memory is powerful. One of my favorite authors and Christian psychiatrist, Kurt Thompson, uh, informs us that what we remember requires us to use different neural pathways. And so, because of that, you and I, um, or or what we remember, feels different. All right, so do me a favor. Just close your eyes for just a moment. Let me hit you with a a series of questions. Just think about these things. Um, Where were you? When you first heard about the events that took place on September 11th, 2001. Some of you weren't born, but where were you when you heard about those events? What is three times four? What do you remember about the first day of school? 
what do you realize, or when did you realize that you first loved K-pop? When did you learn how to ride a bicycle, and can you visualize the time and place? Those are just a few questions you can open your eyes. Each of these questions are alike in that they assess um, how well you and I recall particular facts or experiences, and, and obviously we can sit here and talk all day about how some memories are negative and some memories do bring back really disappointing memories, but consider this. Our memory, your memory, our memory as a community of God, our, our memory as humans, my memory, your memory as an individual has the power to connect or disconnect us from God and our neighbors. Pretty powerful. Thompson will go on to remind us that our memory actually has a way of shaping and contouring our lives in really powerful ways. But uh, by the way, ancients, even some of the folks that Leslie was mentioning this morning, uh, knew this long before contemporary scientists, and their stories and their words suggest that uh, forging a deep connection with God and with others largely depends on our ability to remember. So if you think back to Passover, Passover remembers the Exodus when God liberated the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. This is Exodus twelve fourteen. This day shall be a remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. He'll go on to say that even when you enter the promised land, continue to practice this. Why? Why does he want them to remember these stories? And why does he not want them to forget these things? So I would suggest that it's not just for the sake of miscognition, right? There's not just going to be a test when they get to the promised land and he's going to say, hey, remember those things I told you? Let's do a test right now. I don't think it's just for cognition. Um, I think that they are to remember their experiences with God, their journey. Uh, they're to remember how he split the sea and walked them to the other side. They're designed to remember how he prepared a table for them and a place to worship. And they're designed to remember how he established a covenant and a communion with them. In other words, remember, Israelites, how I dwelled with you and how I continue to dwell with you. Each of these things would have lived in Israel's memory, and um, just like those questions I asked you, each one of those memories would evoke a different emotion. So here's the phrase again. Remembering the past helps us remember the future. Israel, remembering their past helped them remember their future because it helped them remember their new identity as they worshiped as they continued to encounter God, and as a, result, as a result, they embodied. They didn't just remember. That's the cognitive part of this, right? So it's not just facts. They remembered and embodied these stories and carried it with them as they moved into their life. Carrie Underwood sings a song called, Woo! Don't forget to remember me. Not the song written by the Bee Gees. So if you remember that song. But it's the story of a daughter who moves away for the first time. And it's about the continued dialogue that they share and the repeated phrases, don't forget to remember me. Don't forget to remember me. 
So parents, it's not that we think our kids are going to forget us, right? Literally like move away and forget our names or forget those things. But many parents, including myself and Jennifer and quite a few parents, even in this room, uh, spent this past weekend dropping kids off at college sometimes, some for the first time, uh, some in under very different circumstances. Um, but I'm sure that the phrase, don't forget to remember me, resonates with many of you. And maybe it resonates with many of you just more frequently than others because of this weekend. Um, again, it's not that we think our kids are literally or cognitively going to forget us, um, but we want them to remember the experiences that we've um, helped walk them through, right? We want our kids to remember the connection we have with them, not just the facts of everyday life. Uh, it was fun watching our boys, Jack and Luke, as they... placed items and pictures in their rooms. Why? So they would remember. Not because they're going to forget us, right? But so that they remember those experiences. Um, it's fun to think about some of the students that are sitting over here that made it to the wall of fame in both the boys' rooms, right? The little items that they had given also. Um, they remember the identity, their identity, their connection, and the stories that have shaped them. Luke 22, 14 through 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you, is a new covenant in my blood. Jesus simply said, remember me. Not just the cognitive facts, but remember me. He wasn't asking them to recall factual data. He never, they never intended for their memory of him to be confined to their heads only and for information. He knew that what we remember and what they remembered would shape and affect their relationships with everyone and everything that they encountered. Jesus completely transforms, reinterprets, redefines this Passover meal, and every time they eat it, every time they see bread or smell bread or drink this wine, their memory is activated and stimulated. Remember me. Don't forget to remember me. So he says, when you break this bread and when you drink this cup, remember me. Remember our experiences together. Remember our covenant relationship. Don't forget who I am. Remember how I lived out the kingdom while I was here. Remember how I interacted with others. Remember the way. Remember, look around. Remember who was invited to my table. Remember to live this way. Remember my act of love. 
So again, this isn't just factual data for us. It isn't just about homework or test. God still seeks covenant relationship with you and I, and this meal that we're about to participate in, this time helps you and I remember who Jesus is still. And it helps us to remember our past so that you and I can embrace and anticipate God's reality now as we interact in this culture. This meal was never meant to stay in this room. It's meant to shape everything that we do as we walk out of this space. So may our lived experiences of Jesus provoke and remind us to take the reality of this meal into our everyday lives. May our lived memory of Jesus connect us more deeply to him and to others. And may we allow the lived memory of Jesus to shape everything about who you and I are. Pray with me. Father God, we say thank you for today. We say thank you for this bread that we are about to consume that reminds us of your body. Yes, it reminds us of your sacrificial love. It reminds us of what you did, but it reminds us of so much more. It reminds us that you are the bread of life and that you are the nutrition and you are um, the food, the spiritual food that which this world needs and that which we need daily. So, Father, as we break this bread and as we eat this bread, may we remember who you are, and may we remember who we are because of you. Thank you for who you are. God, thank you for sending your son for us, and it's in his name. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Father God, thank you again for a time that we can spend together remembering who you are. Father, remembering the way that you led your people out of Egypt and into a new identity. As you walked them through the Red Sea and as you walked them through the wilderness. Father, as you provided for them as you walked with them and dwelt amongst them, we say thank you. We say thank you for the way that your son did the very same thing as he stepped into human form on this earth and walked with us. Father, who gave his life up on the cross and poured his blood out for all humanity. And Father, may we in turn continue to pour ourselves out into this world. And as we, so as we drink this cup, may we remember who your son is so that it shapes who we are. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Brent read from Psalm 1 9, right? 9. Nine, one, and two. I hope that's what I have right here correctly. Here's what, let me read this again. Thank you for reading this. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of your wonderful deeds. 
I will be glad and rejoice in you, and I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. I'll give thanks to you. Why? Because you remember what he's done and what he's doing. We, so we give thanks. I'll be glad and rejoice in you. I'll sing praises to your names. Why? Because we remember who he is and what he's doing and the way that that's supposed to shape us. It shapes us even in the way that we give of ourselves and of our income, of our talents, whatever it may be, of our time. Um, so pray with me again as we think through that. Father God, thank you again for who you are. We give thanks. We praise your name for all of your wonderful deeds. And Father, may we never forget to remember who you are. And Father, may that shape the way that we give of ourselves. May that shape us into the generous people that your son was. And it's in his name, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that I pray. Amen. As the men come around to pick up your empty communion cups as well as to pick up the contribution, uh, Jen and I are going to be greeting in here in just a few moments right in the back in the middle here of the front foyer. Uh, if you're a guest today, we would love to meet you. If you just come by and say, hey, we're visiting, and let us know who you are, we'd love to love to meet you and, and be able to call you by name. Uh, John, thank you. Thank you for remembering. Uh, John wasn't sure how well he would get through today because he and Jennifer are empty nesters, uh, and that's a different feeling uh, to to offer. Uh, but the Lord's helping them out in that uh, they came home to an empty house that will be full for the next week with grandchildren. Isn't that the way it works? We finally got them out, and then the grands come in. And so, uh, yeah, it's been totally transformed. It's amazing how quickly that happens. You know, as we go today, based on this lesson, let me challenge you with just these challenges. Number one, next week, we're, we're about finished with Matthew. And so next week, we'll be looking at the greatest story of all, the actual death and crucifixion of Jesus. So read Matthew 27. And remember, following Jesus is about remembering. John's exactly right. Remembering the past is how we prepare for the future. And so just please remember, we need to remember about Jesus and what have we sacrificed, truly sacrificed, because of our love for Jesus? Jesus sacrificed himself. Mary sacrificed, I mean, the most valuable money-wise uh, material possession she had. Why? Because she loved Jesus. What have you sacrificed for Jesus? And then number four, pray this week that Jesus' death will be proclaimed throughout the world. Uh, I, I appreciate, John, so much what you said about every time we see that bread and every time we see that fruit of the vine. We need to remember it's not just what we do on Sunday morning. It's what we do every day. And so let's pray that the story of Jesus can ring out. And if you have any kind of special need, we're here for you. We'll have elders in the front lobby as well as the rear lobby. They'll have name tags that say elders. If you have a prayer need, please go and see them. Uh, if you'd like to be baptized, go and say, I'd like to be baptized. They'll arrange that. I'll also be right here. If you'd like to just come forward and talk to me this morning, I'll be happy to talk to you. You can come right now as we stand and sing.